It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, whether we are ready or not. Thank you for taking the time out of a busy holiday season to join us at Dayspring Fellowship as we celebrate the reason we celebrate, Jesus. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. In every season, our team here is committed to helping you grow in your relationship with Jesus. Whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. Our prayer for this service is that God would meet you in the deepest places of your heart as he fills you with love, joy, peace, and hope in a world that desperately needs more love, joy, peace, and hope. We also pray that you find Dayspring the kind of church that you can call home. We are really more of a family. We're the kind of people who will welcome you with open arms, just as you are. Nobody here has their act completely together, so don't think you need to either. This is a safe place to check out the claims of Jesus. It's a safe place to have doubts and questions about spirituality. We like helping people figure out the next steps on their journey. So if you haven't arrived yet, whatever that means for you, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your church home, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Previously on Velma's. A poster in the window is more than enough from you people. More than enough from you people? We'll show that Fountain of Grace Memorial Church. As you know, I have decided to put on a Christmas pageant of our very own right here in the diner. Like we're going to be able to find three wise men around here. It'll be a sight easier than finding a Henry! Friend. Who's going to play the parts? I thought the angel could be played by Nadine. Oh, so it's a comedy. I can't play an angel? I'll be the laughing stock of the entire county. Well, I'm real good with animals, and uh, stables have animals. Now, I'm still uh, waiting for the good Lord to bring my Mary along. We're just going to have to wait for her. Sugar, we are on a tight budget, so we're just gonna have to make do. Mm. Now, speaking of Nadine, have you seen her? Yeah, she's in the back, but she's too embarrassed to come out. Nonsense. Nadine, get your behind out here. <gasps> the first person who makes a joke gets punched. Well, I can't believe it. <laughs> Didn't think she could look that good, did you, Henry? No, I can't believe we weren't all struck by lightning. 
That's it. I'm out of here. No, Bye. now, wait a second, wait a second. You're my angel, and nothing and no one can change that. Now, speaking of, mister, when am I going to get my stable? Well, I guess you'll be stable once you get your medication right. <laughs> Look, I can't get into the center until tonight. It'll be ready. Stop your worry. And honey, those locker rooms smell like a stable, so we're gonna have to get everybody ready over here and then head over once it's showtime. Well, that's the least of my worries. I'm still waiting on my Mary to appear. Oh, I saw on the Discovery Channel where Mary appeared in the bark of a 100-year-old oak tree. Not that kind of appearance, buddy. I'm waiting on the right girl to come along. Well, I've been waiting for 67 years. <laughs> Look, Velma, tomorrow night is Christmas Eve. Don't you think you ought to just pick somebody to play Mary and get on with it? You can't just pick someone to play Mary. First of all, she can't be married. And second of all, she can't be too young or too old. I'm guessing about 20 would be about right. Now look, I know it sounds crazy, but Mary's got to be special. What about her? She looks about right. I can't ask a total stranger to play Mary. Well, if you don't know who's gonna play her, she'll have to be a stranger, now, won't she? Well, you've got a point, but... But she's not the one. How do you know? I can tell by looking at her. Well, I can. I have a sense about these things. My, my mama, she had a sin about her. I, I think it was Lysol. Not a sense, buddy. buddy. A sense. Well, you're never going to know unless you talk to her. Well, I don't have to talk to her because I know she's not the one. But if it'll make y'all happy, I will. Hey there, darling. Can I get you anything else? Some more coffee? Decaf. I can't have caffeine. Oh, does it make you jumpy? No, but uh, it's not good for my baby. Oh, you're pregnant. How nice. So, um, are you and your husband from around here? I'm not married. Oh, really? I am engaged, though. Oh, well, that's nice. Will you excuse me a moment? Well, I guess that answers that. Yeah, she's perfect. Perfectly wrong. What do you mean? She's pregnant, but not married. I'm sorry, but I just don't see Mary that way. Well, I don't mean to state the obvious, but wasn't Mary pregnant, but not married? It's not the same, Henry, and she's not the one. Mary's got to be special and better than everyone else. Ma, don't you sound just like you're from the Fountain of Grace Memorial Church? This is different. Now, I've got nothing against this girl as long as she loves that baby and does what's best for it. But this is Mary, and she's just not the right girl. You mean the right kind of girl, don't you? So, um, are you just passing through? Yes, but uh, my car broke down. Oh, well, where's this fiancé of yours? He's overseas. He's in the Army, and he got called to the Gulf. I call him my G.I. Joey. Oh. That's his name, Joey. Well, you know, really, Joseph. What's your name, darling? Cat. Cat? Like cats and dogs? No, K-A-T. It's short for Catherine. Oh. Actually, that's short for Mary Catherine. For the love of Pete. You're 20 years old, aren't you, Mary Catherine? Fiance of G.I. Joseph. Yeah, how'd you know? I have a sense about these things. And I bet you have no place to lay your head tonight. Actually, no, but I'm not staying with you. <laughs> no, you're not, because you're staying with me. My name is Velma, and I own this place. Now look, sugar, I'm gonna feed you and I'm gonna get your vehicle fixed. And in exchange, you're gonna be my Mary in our little nativity scene tomorrow night. That sounds great, but no thank you. What do you mean, no thank you? Look, you all seem like very nice people, but the fact of the matter is that you don't know me. Honey, I know you better than you think. 
And even though I hate to admit it, you're my Mary. <laughs> no, I'm not. Like I said, you don't know me or where I've been. Look, sugar, I've been down that road, and let me tell you, it's as dead as a three-legged dog trying to cross the interstate. <laughs> so what makes you so sure I'm the one? She smelled it. Come on, darling. Let's get you a bathrobe. Take this for me, please. Charlemagne, or Charles the Great, ruled in the Middle Ages. He was born in 742 AD and died in 814 AD at the ripe old age of 72. He was the eldest son of Pepin the Short. Born into the German tribe known as the Franks, Charlemagne began his rule as king of the Franks at 26 years of age. He later also became king of the Lombards before becoming emperor of the Romans in 800 AD. He united the majority of Western and Central Europe and became the first emperor to reign from Central Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire three centuries prior. He has been called the father of Europe for his work in uniting Europe during his reign. You might be wondering what this has to do with the birth of Jesus. Well, nothing, really. You see, Charlemagne is my great, 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 I don't even know how many, but many great grandfather. I am descended from royalty through my paternal grandmother's genealogy. Now, how do I know this, you ask? Well, my great-grandmother Bertha, who we called Babs, passed a tube much like this on to me before her death, and in it are the details of her hard work of discovering our family's roots. For some reason, she thought that I'd be the most likely to carry on the torch. She was wrong. <laughs> Interestingly, though, uh, my mother's side, uh, we are also descended from royalty, uh, this time out of Wales. I guess I just won the genealogy lottery. You know, to be, <laughs> for, for those of you watching online who couldn't hear that, my wife said something completely inappropriate. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, <laughs> to be honest, I've never heard someone say, I'm a descendant of a Middle Ages peasant who worked the, the ground tirelessly just to keep scraps on the table. Uh, everybody I've ever talked to is interested in this kind of stuff, which is what, three people? Uh, no, everybody is descended from royalty. Attila the Hun, Hannibal the Carthaginian, not the cannibal. Uh, Henry VIII, William the Conqueror. No one is ever descended from Fred the Loser. No one is ever second cousin twice removed from Jeffrey Dahmer. Which means that either all of those early rulers excelled at procreation read between the lines there, or genealogists have some more work to do. Now, as Michelle and John have already discussed, what we call the Christmas story is found in only two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. 
Uh, Luke gives us the most details. It's really more of the traditional telling of Jesus' birth. Angels, shepherds, no room at the inn thanks to no travelocity to make the reservation ahead of time. Uh, Matthew, on the other hand, does a little research and begins his telling of the birth of Jesus with Jesus' genealogy. Each of the four Gospels is written with a different audience in mind. Matthew was writing his Gospel to a Jewish audience, trying to convince the Jews that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish King of Kings. And in order to do that, he had to prove two things. First, that Jesus was descended from Abraham. It all started with him. He was the father of all Jews, the Charlemagne of Jews, so to speak. And then, in order to fulfill the prophecies found in the law of the Jews, which we call the Old Testament, Jesus would also have to be descended from King David, the second king of the Jewish nation. Everyone Jewish knew that in order to actually be the Messiah, those two things had to be true. So Matthew laid it out for the Jews to see for themselves. Uh, Jesus came not only from the line of Abraham, but also from David. Now, what we've already found interesting is that Matthew added some others into the mix as well. He got the, the right ones to, for sure, but he also included some of the R-rated members of Jesus' family. You see, for us, these are just names on a page for the most part, we don't have any emotional tie to these names. Uh, if you've read through the Old Testament, you might remember some of them, but they aren't family. But Matthew's Jewish audience did have an emotional connection with these people. At that time, who you were descended from mattered. And the Jews had grown up hearing the stories of their family, both the good and the bad. They knew who these people were. And just like you have that weird uncle that you hope doesn't show up for Christmas dinner, or that cousin whose elevator doesn't go all the way to the top of the floor, if you know what I mean, or, I mean, they had family members that they'd rather forget. Certainly not highlight them in the lineage of the Messiah. But Matthew does just that. While they would skip over these black sheep, hoping that no one ever dug a little deeper and tweeted about it, Matthew lists them like a badge of honor. He included four women in a, this list of men, three of them not even Jewish, which means that Jesus' bloodline wasn't purely Jewish. Why, why would he point that out? And as we saw last week, there were a couple people with some really wacky stories who did some pretty ugly things. And as you read through these verses, Matthew writes in such a way that it makes you pause as you read them. He forces your attention on these people and just skims through the rest. Why would he do that? Why include these people? As we've already discussed, it's because they are part of the story. In fact, you might say they are the point of the story. You see, Matthew was writing to very religious people. It was a very religious environment. They believed that in order to have right standing with God, you came to God based on the things you had done and the things you had not done. 
In fact, that's how all world religions essentially work. That's how many people come before God. Uh, God, I'm coming before you today. I need you to bless my family. I need you to bless my crops, my business, my relationships. And you should take me seriously because I've done these good things. And not only that, I've not done these bad things. I've even quit these kind of bad things. So while I might not be as good as some people, I'm not nearly as bad as others. That's kind of the general rule. My platform before God is, my approach to God is based on all the good things I've done and the bad things I've avoided. That's who Matthew is writing to. They are super religious, and that's their whole approach to God. Now, the problem with this approach is that the people he was writing to, himself included, and even in our culture, they knew, we know that if my approach to God is based on my righteousness and my consistency in living a good life, then I'm never going to have a relationship with God. Never going to have peace with God. There will always be conflict. And even good people never know if they have been good enough. I was in a taxi in Atlanta a few years ago with Abu. He had emigrated from Ethiopia and had been a deacon in one of those kinds of churches. And during a very fascinating conversation, he told me that he just tries to always do the right thing. He showed me his prayer book, and he said he prays every day, and he treats people as good as he can, and he hopes that is enough. In a works-based religion, you never know until it's too late. Matthew knows that he is drawing people into the greatest story ever told. And since he's writing this after it all happened, he already knows the end. He knows that Jesus flipped the script. This is a story that will demonstrate something that's been true all along, though people haven't really understood it that way. That humanity has been invited to approach God on a relational level. And the basis for that relationship is not what they have done or not done. And instead, the foundation of that relationship is something that God has done on our behalf. In Matthew's gospel, he tells the story of God sending his son uh, to be the savior, not just of the Jews, not just of good people, but of all people of all time, so that we would be able to approach God, not based on something we've done, but what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Matthew turns their world upside down as he flips the script that they've always followed and and, an approach based on works, on effort, and in exchange he gives them and us an approach based on mercy and grace and forgiveness. So as Matthew lays out Jesus' lineage, he highlights that all along, not just in the New Testament, that God has distributed his grace and his mercy to people who have not deserved it. They are part of the story because they are the point of the story. In fact, the reason you are a part of the story is that in spite of what you've done or not done, you are the point of the story. And this is the point of Christmas. So to his Jewish audience, Matthew is inviting them to remember. Remember these stories. Remember that since the beginning of time, God has chosen sinners. He has chosen outsiders and lawbreakers because he is a God of grace 
and mercy and forgiveness. So here's how he begins in Matthew chapter 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Now this is where we left off last week. All of this began about 4,000 years ago. For you history buffs, the story of Abraham takes place around 2000 BC. And it's about 1800 BC by the time the story of Judah took place. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Now there's a solid name, Ram. Do you ever think in the list of the genealogy that there were their version of millennials or Gen Z who just decided to go back to the old-fashioned names or spell everything with a Y? I don't know. (laughs) That's just a side note, my own, you know, that's how my brain works. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, Rahab would be one of those names where Matthew's Jewish audience would pause and go, huh? Because Rahab had a label. Way back in the Old Testament where we find her story, she gets a label, which wasn't all that unusual. You see this throughout the Bible. You see this throughout history. People have a label or a nickname. Let's just have a little test here and see how well you know the Bible. Fill in the blank here. We have John the... Baptist, very good. Next week, we're going to look at the story of Uriah the Hittite. Fewer of you knew that one. Uh, For those of you who might not be as well-versed in Bible names and labels, what about Alexander the Attila the Conan the Buffy the (laughs) Jabba the (laughs) You get it. Labels. Throughout history, it isn't uncommon for people to have a word associated with their name. My many great removed grandpa Charlemagne actually translates from French as Charles the Great. Unfortunately for Rahab, especially for those of you who grew up influenced by the great King James, she was known as Rahab the harlot. Rahab the harlot. Now, this creates a little tension in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab the harlot, and even worse, as we're going to see, she wasn't even Jewish. She was Canaanite, which made her the enemy. She was part of the group standing in the way of Israel, claiming the promised land, the kingdom that King David would eventually rule over. And here's why Rahab the harlot causes some tension. She doesn't belong. God's law was clear, especially when he gave the law to Moses, and Matthew's audience would have been well-versed in the law. The law clearly says that you can't have any of this in your midst, and there's some pretty harsh punishment for women who play the harlot. So we have a harlot right here in the middle of the Christmas story. And it isn't the biggest kept secret. Everyone knows. And Matthew could have just skipped over it. He could have just stuck with men, with guy names. That was normal, expected, traditional. But he puts on the brakes for just a moment to remind his audience, including us, generations later, 
that in the middle of this incredible story of grace and mercy and forgiveness, right there in the lineage of Jesus is a woman whose reputation is tainted, not just throughout her lifetime, but in perpetuity. She never fades into oblivion because of who her story is linked to. She is the point of the story. She isn't just part of the story, she's the point. This is the context Matthew is setting for the greater story he's about to tell. So let's just look at some of her story. If you want to follow along, turn or navigate in your Bible or Bible app to the Old Testament book of Joshua. We'll start with a few verses in Joshua chapter 2 and then move to Joshua chapter 6. While you get there, let me just set the scene. This is where her story shows up in the story of this Jewish nation. Most of us are familiar with the gist of the story. When Joseph, who we talked about last week, was the governor of Egypt, his family eventually moved to Egypt to live under his protection, and they stayed there. A couple of generations later, they clearly enjoyed their marriages because they just kept popping babies out of the oven. The Egyptians, fearful that they might be overrun by these outsiders, made them slaves. In all, they were in Egypt for 400 years. Along comes Moses, who, after lots of drama, leads his big family out of slavery into the desert, where they take an 11-day journey in 40 years. They finally end up at the Jordan River, just outside of what they called the Promised Land. It was the land that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived in before going to Egypt. So they're basically going home. There was only a handful of them when they left. Now, 400 years later, scholars estimate that there are two to three million of them coming home to the promised land. I told you, they enjoyed the benefits of marriage. So they cross the Jordan River into an area controlled by the city of Jericho. And Joshua, who took over after Moses died, sends a couple of men to Jericho to see what they are up against. There's no way to hide a couple of million people. It's been an interesting 40 years, and their reputation has preceded them, so Jericho is at DEFCON 1, which means that in spite of their James Bond efforts, they are spotted. The spotters let the king of Jericho know what they've spotted, and the two men, our two men, have to find a place to hide. A house-to-house search ensues, and just as the sun begins to set, they are seen ducking into a house right on the wall of Jericho, which happens to be the home of Rahab the harlot. Now the Bible doesn't give us specifics, but we know from what it does say that instead of just barging into Rahab's, they knock on the door. I think they knew whose house they'd reached, and you'd never want to barge into a home like Rahab's because you'd never know what or who you might find. And there are some things you just can't unsee. (laughs) But that's just a guess. It's me reading between the lines. But you've got to wonder why they didn't just barge in and get these spies. Someone had seen them enter. They knew. But they knock. And Rahab comes to the door and they say, uh, Hey, Rahab. They probably left off the harlot part. Uh, have, have you seen two Hebrews? Uh, someone told us they, were, they might be at your house. Yes, she says. They were here, but they left just after sundown. Just before the city gates were locked, shut, and locked for the night. And that's, that's what they do every night, shut and lock the gates. And if you showed up after dark in their culture, you spent the night outside of the city gates. 
So she says, I think if you round up a good old Western posse and go looking for them, they shouldn't be too hard to find. They can't have gotten that far. And so they leave. I mean, why would Rahab the harlot lie to them? Even if she was an outcast among them because of her profession, she was one of them. But they leave the city in search of the spies. Meanwhile, Rahab goes up to her roof where she has hidden them and has a conversation with them, with these two men, which is where we'll pick up the story in Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. Now, the, the translation for the Hebrew name for God that probably is Lord in all capital letters in your Bible is a word that is rarely used for God because it was a special word. It, some Jewish leaders and Jewish people wouldn't even speak this name. Uh, they would, it was only written. It was the most sacred name for God. We don't know what language the, the spies and Rahab used in their communication. We don't know if they there was a translator. So we don't know how it happened. But when this text was written, they chose to describe God to reflect what Rahab said above all of the other names they could have used. It was essentially the highest name for God. It literally means the existing one. The, the name above all names. It wasn't just a descriptive name. It just literally meant the existing one. She said that we believe God, however you think, however you view God, as big as you think God might be, we believe that the God of all gods, of my household gods, my, of my ancestral gods, we believe that God has given you this land. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror, for we have heard how. Now, she uses a different descriptive name for God. The Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when, she, when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. And pay attention here. She uses an interesting combination of words. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. For the Lord your God. Two different words for God. For the great existing one who is the ruler. That's what she says literally who we believe is the God of heaven and earth. She is basically saying, I believe in spite of what I've been taught. I believe in spite of what I've seen to this point in my life. I believe that your God, whoever he is, is the God who reigns and rules over my household gods, our Canaanite gods, over everything I've ever known about God before this time. She doesn't know any more than that, but that's enough to give her an amazing mount of, of faith. Verse 12. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all their families. 
we offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. Since you saved our lives, we're going to save yours. If you don't betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us this land. And then she lowers them down the wall with a rope through a window. Remember that her house was right on the city wall. She essentially says, I don't know anything about your God. I'm not even sure of the name of your God, but I'm telling you that I think your God is God. And they responded with, we will rescue you and save your life because uh, uh, when we take this city because of your kindness to us. And then I guess that good old-fashioned Canaanite posse had gone far enough in one direction that they circled around and made their way successfully back to Joshua. And when they get back to him, they report that everyone in the city is scared to death. This will be a piece of cake. They may even just open up the gates and let us in. Now, what happens next is an important part of Bible history that many of you have heard at some point in your life. If you're like me, it involved a flannel graph and a song that I won't sing to you today, though I still remember it from Sunday school as a kid. The generals all met with Joshua, and he laid out a very unusual plan. You won't need your weapons. Just wear good shoes. We're going to do a lot of walking. In fact, we're all going to walk. If there were, say, two and a half million Israelites, we don't know how many men, we don't know how many of those men were soldiers, but let's just guess several hundred thousand people. We'll just take a lap around the city on the first day. Just one. And then again on the next day, one lap. And again, and again for six days. And then on the seventh day, we're going to walk around the city seven times. And then we're going to shout. Any questions? <laughs> I thought we were going to conquer the city. This sounds more like a parade. <laughs> but that was the plan. Done in such a way that God would get all of the credit for the victory. So that all of the people of Jericho and all of the people around them and the surrounding nations would know that Rahab was right. Their God was the real deal, and he had come to bring these Israelites back home. So they follow the plan. Once around the city. Twice around the city. Thrice around the city. I don't know what ice comes next, but six days. One lap a day, and seven on the seventh, and then a shout. And sure enough, the walls just collapse on themselves. This is really history. And it's interesting to read what both believing and non-believing scholars have to say about what actually happened. There are all kinds of theories. One is that the echo of the shout reverberated off the walls. Another, uh, that all of those Israelites walking around the city eroded the foundation of the walls. Who knows? The bottom line is that the walls collapsed, chaos ensued, conquering happened. The Israelites basically take everything, and in the midst of this chaos and terror and bloodshed, stuff that our modern minds have a hard time coming around, in the midst of all of that, God reaches in and spares one family because of the faith of one Canaanite prostitute. Here's how the story ends in Joshua chapter 6, verse 22, uh, if you're following along. After they've taken the city and the dust has settled, uh, uh, the, uh, and Joshua fulfills the promise that these two men made to Rahab the harlot. 
Verse 22, meanwhile, Joshua said to the two spies, keep your promise. Go to the prostitute's house and bring her out, along with all of her family. And then drop down to verse 25. So Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho. And catch this, this is the happily ever after that we love to see at the end of a story. As my granddaughter Avery would say, boom, happy ending. (laughs) And she lives among the Israelites to this day. And she lives among the Israelites to this day as a picture of something that was still foreign to their thinking, that God is a God of mercy and grace who would even spare a foreigner, an outsider, even to her own people, an enemy, someone who by their law should be judged and not allowed to live among them. Rahab and her family live among the Israelites to this very day. And hundreds and hundreds of years later, reading the genealogy of Jesus written by Matthew, the one that describes where Jesus came from, they know this story. It stands out as such an aberration of holiness, an aberration of the law, an aberration of everything that should be. Because it's the point of the story. But what the Bible doesn't tell us is that one day Rahab was going about her own business. The the Bible doesn't say if Rahab continued in her pre-wall-falling-down profession or she went to the community college for some vocational training. But one day she's doing her chores. Maybe she's shopping in the market and a man named Salmon walks up to her and invites her to share a cup of coffee. And then maybe dinner. And then an engagement. And this Jewish man marries this Canaanite outsider with a checkered past. And they have a baby they named Boaz. And Boaz grew up and as an older man met Ruth who has a whole book of the Bible to tell her story. And they have a baby and Boaz and Ruth's great grandson is King David himself. And Matthew pauses and brings all of that to the memory for his audience because he knew that the story of Rahab illustrates the entire story and message of Jesus. A woman condemned by the law of Moses, still dripping in ink. Well, maybe the dust was still settling from the tablets. But the law is brand new. They are still following it religiously. And she's an outcast, an outsider who shouldn't be allowed to live among the people. And an enemy. A lawbreaker living at a time when life was ruled by the law. And yet God says, my grace is broader than the law. My mercy is broader than the law. My love and forgiveness cover over all that is said and done to the point that she was literally brought into the family of God himself. It's the perfect illustration because her story isn't really all that far off from our story. She had a label, Rahab the harlot. Now, if you were to take a moment of self-reflection and peel away the layers Uh, that uh, of protection that you've built around yourself and really studied your private behavior and your public behavior your past the things about you that nobody else knows the the truth is that probably we all have a label some of us have labels that humiliate us that we don't ever want anyone else to know maybe that's what brought you to church Some of us have labels we've tried to forget, to erase, or at least distance ourselves from. We have labels we'd like to go back and rewrite or undo. Some of us have labels because of secrets, or maybe because of habits. 
the truth is, there is some of Rahab in all of our stories. Maybe because when we approach God with what we want him to do in our lives or for us, the thing that comes to mind is our label. And we feel like we don't deserve it. Or that God won't hear us. Or take us seriously. It's possible that your label is what keeps you from really experiencing the type of relationship God, with God that you want. That he wants. Maybe your label is carry the coveter. Grace, the greedy. Chuck, the cheater. Larry, the luster. Jack, the jerk. Faith, the unfaithful. You know, maybe Matthew stopped to pause here at Rahab because he had a label too. Matthew, the tax collector, despised among Jews until Jesus walked up to him and gave him a new label. Jesus didn't look at him and say, Matthew, once you quit being a tax collector, join me. He didn't say, Matthew, I want you to promise you won't ever do it again. Or, Matthew, once you've repented of your tax collecting, I want you to follow me. Once you get a different label, you can join me. It was simply, follow me. Matthew remembered that day, and he's about to tell us the story of Jesus who invites all kinds of people with all kinds of labels to follow him, to believe in him while they were still wearing their labels. Because as Andy Stanley, who gave us the framework for this series, says, because his righteousness did not overshadow his mercy, and his holiness would never overshadow his grace, and his sense of forgiveness was broad enough to incorporate and encompass everyone, regardless of his or her label. And the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, the point of the story is proof of the story. How powerful is that? Whatever label you have, you've been invited to lean into the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God with your label. You have been invited to lean into the God who leaned into you just as you are. He wants a relationship with you while you are wearing your label. You don't have to get rid of it first. You're invited to, to a relationship that isn't based on anything you've done or not done. In spite of your label, you are being invited into a relationship purely based on the grace and mercy and forgiveness of someone other than you. That's what Christmas is all about. God wants a relationship with you. And only then will he begin to chip away at all of those old labels that you don't want anymore anyway. Some of you are thinking, but Chris, if you only knew, if you could see into the deepest parts of my heart and you knew my thoughts, if you could see my jealousy, if you could see what I covet, if you could see what I do in secret, if you could see my hate, my bitterness, my brokenness, we are all a mess. You've let your label get in the way for too long. But now you know. It's actually your platform to a relationship with God. So as we close, I want to invite you to pray with me. And this prayer is for anyone who has let their label get in the way of a relationship with God. But now you know, 
and you're ready for a different approach, ready to flip the script and let Jesus be enough instead of trying to get there on your own merits. You don't have to be a non-Christian to let your label get in the way of your relationship with God. Even those of us who are supposed to know better get this wrong. But no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our perfect Savior came from an imperfect family. Thank you that, that Matthew decided to write something, obviously under the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, but decided to write something that didn't gloss over all of the parts that, are, that, that we would be embarrassed by, that we would want to leave out if we were uh, thinking about our own lineage. Thank you that he doesn't gloss over those because from the very beginning, we have a God who made a way for outsiders like us, for enemies like us, for broken and messy people like us. And Father, we all have an internal script that runs through our head that says we are not enough. I am not enough. And the truth of the matter is that is absolutely true. None of us is enough. But Jesus was. Jesus is. Father, we invite you to re- write our labels. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, <laughs> when you think about it, I may be descended from royalty in the earthly uh, standpoint, from an earthly viewpoint, but since the day that I crossed the line and began to follow Jesus, at the age of seven, I have become royalty. I am a child of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's true for all of us who have uh, entered into a relationship with Jesus. And that label trumps all else. Father, here at Christmas, we probably also have people in the room or watching online who have yet to enter into the freedom that comes in knowing Jesus. And if that describes you today, let me just tell you that it's, it's really a rather simple thing to just say, God, I admit that I am not enough. I, I admit that I will never be good enough. I admit that my junk has gotten in the way. But today, I receive the mercy and grace and forgiveness that comes with a relationship with Jesus. And now teach me to follow you. Rewrite my labels. It's that simple. The words don't really matter as much as your heart. But today I invite you to cross that line. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Once again, thank you for joining us in worship today. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. For those of you who make this ministry possible with your financial giving, thank you for your generosity and faithfulness. We know God is doing something in you when you give, but he also does something through you. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you are on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.